one of the best studies I've seen was one looking at the um, the floors underneath the amphitheater at Chester, which is in, in northwest uh, England, uh, where they found lots and lots of um, egg shell fragments, and it, it, it they seem to be selling them as a kind of a, a snack food, boiled eggs as a snack food for anybody who's at um, watching the show in the amphitheater. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire. Something I think about a lot is, what if my remains or the remains of my house got preserved? What would archaeologists 2,000 years later think about my life? Would they think weird things about the clothes in my closet? What would they think of the laptop in front of which I spend all of my time? What would they think of the cool rocks I've picked up from places that I've traveled? Would they see my microphone for this podcast and decide that I was using it for ritual use? And what would they think of, say, the giant bag of marshmallows that I definitely ate like some sort of large raccoon because the last few weeks have been very stressful for work and I don't need your judgment? Would they analyze the marshmallow remains, finding out where they came from? Would they trace the sugars back to a beet in Kansas or Mexico, corn from Illinois? What would they think about the trade routes that those ingredients implied and what it means about the lives that we lived? Archaeologists have certainly asked these questions about the food of the past. And today we're going to talk to scientists that study both ancient food and the origins of some of the food we still eat today. Silvia Valenzuela Lamas is one of them. She's a zooarchaeologist at the Spanish Research Council in Barcelona. She does not have marshmallows, but she does have the remains of a lot of ancient bacon. Sylvia, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's a pleasure um, to be here today. <laughs> so you specialize in zooarchaeology, um, specifically of domesticated animals. Um, yeah. And so I was wondering how, how did you kind of become interested in studying ancient people's cows? Well, <laughs> when, I, when I was in primary school, I liked zoology and was biology and then I like history as well and archaeology because of course I watched uh, the Indiana Jones films and it was all very exciting um, but then when I was confronted to maths and chemistry and everything was like I probably should focus on <laughs> on ancient history and, and not biology because uh, I like animals but um, studying I don't know protozoas and things like that it didn't sound very excited. So at the end, I, I study history in the University of Barcelona. And within archaeology, I discovered that I could study actually animal remains from the past. And this was the perfect ma match between the two disciplines. And that's why. <laughs> and why is it kind of important to study not just these animals that are associated with people, but how their use changes over time. I think a lot of people might say, okay, well, we domesticated the cow and then we've just had the cow, well, <laughs> right? Like, why yeah. is it important to change how we had cows, just to study how we had cows over time? Yeah, well, it's important because domestic animals reflect human choices. So uh, when we analyze faunal remains from archaeological sites, we have a long-term perspective of how humans adapted animal husbandry to a range of scenarios, uh, depending on their technology or the degree of political or economic integration, different ecologies. So archaeologists uh, or archaeology provides this long-term empirical data 
uh, that can be used to to produce better models for different present-day scenarios. And I was wondering, you mostly work in the time between the late Bronze Age and early antiquity in the Mediterranean, which is probably kind of a cultural touchstone for a lot of people. Um, you know, it's like between the Iliad and the Roman Empire, <laughs> basically. And I was wondering if you could kind of walk us through broadly what is happening at this time in terms of where people are living, where people are moving. This is this is a several thousand year period. Um, yes. So um, what is what is happening? <laughs> well, we see a raise in social complexity and the degree of economic integration. That's why I focused on this time period because this is when um, the the scale of mobility and the scale of uh, interaction between different areas, uh, especially in the Mediterranean, but I'm sure in, in other places as well, uh, increased an awful lot. So yeah, it's it provides us with a model of what could be a, a connected world in, in the past. So was this world not connected and then became connected over time? Like, are we looking at like small villages suddenly getting trade with larger centers? Or are we looking at like tribal kind of warlord sort of things? Like what what's the kind of well, growing political situation? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, connectivity has existed since ever. When humans uh, moved, uh, well, it's it's in inheritance in in our existence. We always move, we always interact and and exchange things. But in the Bronze Age, uh, there was a a different scale, and then in Roman times, it was even more apparent. We start from small villages, let's say, and, and limited interactions to the beginning of a, of a market economy that really finds its expression in, in Roman times. And that's why it's interesting to see how this process started and evolved and eventually collapsed in late, in late antiquity, uh, because then we, we have a model there to work for present-day scenarios. And so you are working with kind of animal remains to kind of understand more about where people were living, where they were moving, what they were eating. What kind of animal remains do you get from a lot of these sites? Because, of course, a lot of the sites that we associate with the late Bronze Age, early antiquity are still inhabited. <laughs> people still live there. <laughs> um, so, yeah. like, where do you get these animal remains? What what do they look like? We mainly find... Um... Animal remains from mammals, from and especially from the domesticates like uh, cattle and pigs and sheep and goats. Um, we also find some birds and fish remains, but in uh, lesser quantities, let's say. Um, and they look like it, when you cook something on the bone and think about, uh, I don't know, dig it in, in your garden for three months and then you take it. And it's amazing. Sometimes we, we get the same kind of preservation from bones that, that are buried uh, 2,000 years. Uh, it's amazing. You you see the, the shape. Uh, you can tell which anatomical part uh, 
they were eaten. You can see the cut marks and the burning marks. And yeah, we can tell an awful lot of things <laughs> about the on the animal bones that we retrieve from archaeological sites. And are these from, are they collected together? Like they are, are they from like trash heaps um, or were they like preserved in some way, like a storage facility that caved in, like that sort of thing? Or is it mostly garbage? Uh, basically, it's it's, gar- it's garbage. But uh, what we find in archaeological sites, sometimes you will find the positions like a horse that died or, or a dog or they were trapped when the building collapsed or something like that. But in general, the majority of remains, it's just the garbage um, of ancient people. And then we know if the animals were smaller or bigger, or they prefer to eat uh, pork, or they prefer beef, or yeah. And so I wanted to use as an example for this, there's an area that you've been working with in northeastern Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering, you, you've covered kind of the transition in this area between like pre-Roman colonization and post-Roman colonization. What was it like before the Romans got there? Okay, in this particular area, uh, people were living in small villages, fortified, located on hilltops. Um, they were small, but... A lot of effort was put in fortification. They were uh, building towers and ditches and concealed entrances. So you can tell that uh, fortification was a big issue in the society. Then when the Romans arrived and the conquest happened pretty early in the second century BCE, all the majority of these villages located on hilltops were abandoned and people moved to the, to the plains. Of course, before there were uh, rural farms, and so it's not all about these hilltop villages, but um, they were the, the main feature of the Iron Age, and then in Roman times, the main feature is the villa. It's uh, rural rural farms that don't have any kind of fortification, in general they are for production, and there's also a development of urban centers, big cities that... In, in a way, complement and and reveal a specialization of the production. And I was going to say, because is this part of the area that was conquered in part for the silver mines? There's a significant amount of silver mining um, on the Iberian Peninsula. I mean, was that part of like what they ended up exporting or...? No, actually, here in northeastern Iberia, what is present-day Catalonia, they were producing wine. And wine production increased uh, a lot in Roman times. So they focused on cereals and wine production, while the silver was more towards the south and, and also then all the area of present-day Andalusia in southern Spain. This this was uh, this olive oil production that then were exported through the empire with the army. And of course, you know, those people who were making all that wine. Uh, <laughs> I, I love the idea of a bunch of like Roman dudes in Italy being like, oh, yeah, you know, Italian wine's fine, but have you had Spanish wine? <laughs> That's the really. Because <laughs> you know, these days we're like, oh, Italian wines are the best. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> um, was Spanish wine considered like really fine or was it like. 
definitely it was cheaper than Italian wine and oh, no. <laughs> of good quality. Uh, so at the end, yeah, it's a matter of <laughs> solid middle class wine for value. <laughs> Um, and I was wondering, you know, those people who are producing all that wine, they need to eat. Um, what did their diets and most particularly the animal remains kind of look like before the Romans got there? Before the Romans here, the, the main uh, apport in, in meat was from sheep and goats. And the animals were pretty small. Um, and yeah, it was the, the main livestock they had sheep and goats and, and then uh, some pigs and, and very little cattle. Then when Romans arrived, uh, there was an increase in, in the consumption of pork and, and, and also cattle, and animals were much bigger compared to the Iron Age ones. I was especially impressed by the data from there showing the massive increase in pork. <laughs> I don't really think of the Romans as like a bacon-loving people. <laughs> but they really did eat yeah, a lot yeah. of pork. Romans from Italy were mad. <laughs> <laughs> and and I was wondering, um you, you see this increase in like cattle and pork. Um, mm -hmm. do we know that people were eating these animals? Do we know that they were exporting them? Um, like was there export for meat or was this all just kind of local diet? This is more difficult to say. I mean, uh, what we know is that they were eating much more pork and cattle than before. This is for sure, because we can see the battery marks and, and the, the deposits are very clear in this sense. Then in terms of export, we don't have, I'm afraid, uh, the archaeological evidence for it. Of course, we always have less hams than expected. And this is, uh, this is still today an archaeological issue. Whether this is a, a matter of archaeological preservation of this particular bone or it is a reality that for some reason we don't have the, the hams and they were exporting them perhaps. Um, but no, I think that in order to answer this question, uh, we should find, um, uh, a boat, you know, in the archaeological record. A shipwreck. Yeah. Exactly. A shipwreck. And then we could tell, but this is still to be found. So you need to find a shipwreck full of ham. Exactly. And then, <laughs> then we will understand. <laughs> I love yeah. that. Um, and I was wondering, you know, we, you primarily study, you know, animal remains. Do mm -hmm. we know how much meat figured in the diets of these people? Well, this is a very difficult question because we can work on terms of, in terms of relative frequencies, but we cannot work in terms of absolute amount. First, because we don't have the total of the archaeological record that it will, it happened in the past. Um, because of course we, we only have a part of it. And then, uh, yeah, it's to know how much meat. Uh, can have uh, on a bone foie. This is really difficult to say. Yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid I cannot answer. Yeah, I would. So, I, but I was wondering: Do we know kind of broadly? Did people living in like northeastern Spain did their diets change when the Romans arrived? Like, did the Romans bring all of this new food, or did the Romans take all of their food? <laughs> Because no, no. <laughs> either of those things could happen. <laughs> yes, of course. No, no. Uh, what we can see is an increase of the archaeological record. So probably uh, 
we think that we have uh, an increase on meat, on meat consumption in general in Roman times mm. um, because we have more bones and the, the archaeological record is, is richer in this sense. And we also know that they wrote uh, exotic uh, species and, and the trade, especially this is very apparent in, in Britain, they brought plenty of new things to, to diet in very distant places. So products were traveling from one side to the other of the Mediterranean in, in a greater extent, in a greater, sorry, a greater extent than before. And do we know, you mentioned meat consumption kind of went up. Does that mean people were eating better or were they just eating different? Ooh. <laughs> like do we know if people's Very health <laughs> like do we know if people's health kind yeah. of like overall increased or decreased uh in terms of size or oh, so human size uh, uh there is a study showing that uh human size also increased in Roman times. So it was not only the, the animals, but also humans. And in general, uh, this is related to, to better nourishment because uh, when you have uh, difficulties in, in nourishing yourself, then your size decreases in, in a natural way in order to, to keep the metabolic um, level. So if we take into account the, the human size, perhaps, yes, we could say that in, in Roman times, people were eating better but of course, it depends if you were a slave or a rich <laughs> owner. And rich Romans were famous for eating some really bizarre things. Exactly. <laughs> Larks, <laughs> tongues in honey, <laughs> dormice. <laughs> yeah. um, so, and I was wondering, you know, we were, we're talking about kind of how the Roman colonization of Spain um, altered kind of the people living there and what they ate. But I was wondering, do we know if the colonization of Spain affected the people back in Italy? Like, for example, they probably got Spanish wine. Mm -hmm. um, like, Spanish but did the Romans, oil. like, yeah, and Spanish olive oil. Um, but did the Romans think of it as like, could you go out for Spanish food? Um, you know, did they like, oh, yeah, we've got this new, cool, exotic food from Spain. Like, was there was there kind of an, ex an exchange? Or was it like, oh, these are barbarians? Because, of course, we know that the Romans did not, they, they kind of considered everyone who was not them to be the absolute dregs of society. Um, so, I mean, did they take any of that back? Um, this is difficult to say, really, and especially in terms of animals. Um, I'm not sure to what extent we were exporting things to, to Italy, other than, than the well-known wine and, and olive oil. Um, but in terms of the animals, yeah, I think that we, um, the archaeological record is not that clear because we can trace the wine and the olive oil thanks to the amphorae, and this preserves very well in the archaeological record, and you can tell whether this amphorae was produced in this region or another because the shape... So an amphorae is a, a large... <laughs> like when you say an amphorae, it's a large pottery... Yeah, container. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and those are those are usually you can trace them because they're locally made. It's not like they were exactly. made elsewhere and then shipped over, <laughs> and then That's filled right. and then shipped back. They had to be made locally. Exactly. But then when you find a, a bone, a, a cattle bone, it looks it, it can be different in shape or 
different in size, but the overall shape is the same. So you cannot tell really if this was an, uh, a cow that lived in Italy for the whole life or it was brought from something from somewhere somewhere else. I was wondering about that because I know that, for example, they've been able to do analysis on humans, um, on hair and on bones to basically say, oh, this person was born eating this diet associated with this ecosystem, but now they're in another ecosystem and they eat a different diet. And so you can actually kind of track travel, but you can't do that with animals so much? You can trace mobility using strontium, for instance, and strontium and oxygen in from, hum- uh, from dental enamel. Uh, because this is when where it preserves. But then we have a problem because uh, strontium, you can relate it to a given geological bedrock. But then if you have movements within a given geology, because you have a huge plane, for instance, and the geology is very stable, you cannot tell really whether the animals were moving across the plane. Or if you have a very diverse geological setting, like in Italy or in a lesser extent, Spain, and you have, I don't know, a strontium signature of pigs, then you cannot tell whether this comes from, let's say, central Italy, southern France, northeastern Spain, because you have the same uh, isotopic ratio of strontium in different uh, geological locations. So it's difficult to say, really. You can trace variability. So you can say, okay, the Iron Age people were breeding mainly locally uh, their animals because you have very little variability and we can potentially see whether there is uh, more diversity in Roman times and we can tell yes, there is more diversity in, in Roman times. But then to state whether this animal was brought from here or from there, this is more difficult to say. Yeah. So when you say there's variability, do you mean variability in genetics? Like the, the cows were less inbred or do you mean variability in terms of like phenotype like size or no i the, i was uh, referring to variability in the mobility in the strontium ratios i see, because I see. for genetics you need um, a good collagen preservation and unfortunately in the mediterranean because we have um, quite um, warm uh, in summers so the collagen preservation is is pretty poor in general. So it's difficult to have the, the to to arrive to the whole sequencing of the, the genome. And in general we have okay, we have T1 cattle and this is compatible with half Europe. Oh! <laughs> it's very difficult to say whether they were coming from Italy or not, based on genetics. You can tell this cow is from the continent. Exactly. Definitely. And it's definitely it's, not from China. Okay. Exactly. Well, and different from, from Africa as well. I mean, there's a, you can say things, uh, but sometimes the resolution you need is, is yeah. I did actually want to uh, stay on cows for a second because you mentioned that a lot of times what you're getting is bones and you can be like, ah, yes, this was definitely a pork chop at some point. Um, this was definitely ribs. Somebody yeah. was having steak. Um, yeah. <laughs> do we have any indication that um, the cows are being used for dairy as opposed to meat? Like, can we tell that? Because, you know, we know that that Romans ate a lot of like goat cheeses were totally a thing. Sheep cheeses, also a thing. Um, you know, was there an increase in like dairy milk consumption as well? 
You know, dairy cattle are very recent in time. They, they were an invention of the 19th century because in all the traditional breeds, you need the cow to have a calf, to have a baby. In, and then you can take a bit of milk. But she's not going to produce milk for the whole year. This particular, the, the dairy milk, that we, uh, the dairy cows that we have today, they started in the Netherlands uh, in the 19th century, and then they were exported all over the places because, of course, it was uh, a great invention. <laughs> but it, it was a, a mutation, really. It was like uh, the chickens, the, the hens, to have a, a hen that is able to produce uh, eggs during the whole year, this is this was perhaps a, a Roman invention or something that needs to, to be tracked in time because it's not something that happens uh, naturally. It's a mutation, a genetic modification that happens by chance, probably, but then you reproduce it because it, it's a, a great advantage. Yeah, that's one of the so things that... Sometimes it's a bit early, probably, yeah. That's one of the things that kind of really boggles my mind because, you know, when you think about we have this picture in our minds of what like the middle ages looked like. Mm -hmm. And there's usually somebody milking a cow. Like that is. <laughs> yes, of course you can, you can take some milk, but this cow had a baby for sure. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that probably was slightly less common than, you know, we think about, they were probably more likely milking their goats. <laughs> <laughs> their cow. Yeah. Um, so one of the things you also track, as you mentioned, you know, they vary a lot in size. So you can say, oh, we got this shoulder bone off this sheep. And my, this sheep is very small. Um, and this is something that actually really surprised me because they were really small. <laughs> like in the in the northeast Spain, um, the sheep started out super, super weeny. Um, <laughs> and I can you can you talk about how small they are? Because yeah, in terms of the shoulder height, uh, probably they were like 55 centimeters or 60 max maximum. Today, we have uh, breeds up to 80 or 90 uh, centimeters in the shoulder, and the head is, is uh, more. And the cattle were like uh, 110 centimeters, whereas today it's, you can have 150 or more. It, it was a big, big difference. Yeah. I mean, like when you think of them next to each other, you'd think that like the littler sheep is is the the baby because <laughs> yeah. it's so much smaller. Yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> um, and I was wondering, um, and this was before Roman colonization. And then in during Roman colonization, there was actually a drastic jump in the size of these animals. Do we know why? Do we know what happened? We are investigating that at the moment. We think that um, it was probably a combination of two factors. First, uh, a better nourishment, because if you think about uh, the Iron Age people uh, with all these fortifications, probably they had a lot of pressure over resources and they couldn't move easily from one place to another. So what we are seeing in, in the animals um, is the is malnutrition and 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 nutrition stress that uh, leaves traces in, in the teeth uh, called uh, hypoplasia, enamel hypoplasia. Um, and then this, this short size, because the animal couldn't develop more. It, it, there wasn't enough fodder and pasture for, for it to develop. 
then in Roman times, um, and probably, sorry, I get luck, uh, probably they, we had a, a lot of inbreeding because if you cannot cross your animals easily with other uh, breeds or places or, then, yeah, yeah the animals is like in humans, uh, you can, you can get uh, too much inbreeding and this is bad for reproduction and diseases and so, so on. Then in Roman times, we have a change of a scenario because suddenly, a much larger uh, area in the territory were under un, under the same rule. Under, so the Roman Empire provided like a juridic um, safety for a larger part of the territory, it was integrated in a larger economy, in a larger political system. Um, and then this broke, in a way, this inbreeding, this high inbreeding rate because movement was much easier, much easier. They built infrastructures with the big roads for the army. Uh, so communication was uh, enhanced uh, in, in a way. And then when you have a bigger territory, you can make a better use of the landscape because you are not restricted in the same place in winter and summer and winter again. And if the, the bad weather comes, you cannot go out. And so in a way, the Roman system changed animal husbandry, I think, for better <laughs> conditions, uh, uh, breaking this inbreeding and, and this pressure over resources that, that we see in the Iron Age. And I actually wanted to kind of go the opposite way, because one of your papers looking at animal size in the late Bronze Age, um, it was looking at what is now Spain, France, and the Balearic Islands, which are off the coast of Spain. Um, and what you saw was that in the late Bronze Age, this is before Roman occupation, their animals actually got smaller. They started off bigger <laughs> and yes. they got smaller. Why do you think that happened? We talked a little bit about kind of like limitations. Were there new limitations on you know animals? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the Iron Age had a, um, a big innovation that was iron. And with iron, you can put in labor. Um, Big, uh, different fields. If you don't have iron, your, um, uh, the fields that, that you can use for agriculture are some of them. But when you have iron, you can expand cereal production. And they did, of course. And then we find a demographic increase. When you expand agriculture, firstly, you reduce the amount of land devoted for pasture. Okay, so you expand agriculture, you reduce for pasture. And then we have this demographic increase. Um, instead of collaborating, people started uh, fighting each other for the resources available. They, in, and the change in the landscape, the, this building of fortifications, is a, a reflection of the pressure they had uh, protecting their lands uh, in a way. So this was the big change from the Bronze Age, where people were living in huts. Uh, to the Iron Age that, yes, well, they were living in buildings, stone building buildings, but then with a higher pressure over resources, I'm afraid. So basically, they were farming more, but that food was not going into their livestock. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I also wanted to ask, and we talked a little bit about this before we hit record, um, the Balearic Islands are uh, what we now probably people have heard of like Mallorca. Of course. <laughs> one of the Balearic Islands. Um, yes. <laughs> um, and um, so 
I, I was, uh, there's this amazing legend, mm-hmm. legend, um, Pliny the Elder <laughs> in the Roman period recounts at one point that the people of the Balearic Islands begged the Emperor Augustus to send them a shipment of ferrets. And I love this very much. <laughs> um, so uh, <laughs> listeners will know that this gets back to one of my personal um, interests, which is pests, um, animals that bother us. And the reason they wanted the shipment of ferrets is because in the Roman period, cats were not as common for rodent control. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, it was ferrets and polecats. Um, mm-hmm. And there are various reasons as to why that is. They They had cats. Um, but cats were much more common in Egypt. Egypt was very possessive of their cats. <laughs> but um, and so the Romans kind of had more of a tradition of using ferrets. And so they asked for this shipment of ferrets um, because they were having a plague of rabbits at the time. Because yeah. sure. Um, and I was wondering, you know, you've been looking at the archaeology of these islands. Is there any evidence that there was a plague of rabbits? <laughs> Actually, the, we start finding more rabbits uh, in Roman in Roman levels in the Balearics, um, but sometimes they they are also find uh, found in earlier levels. But the problem with rabbits is that they uh, make um, how it's called um, burrows. Burrows, exactly. <laughs> so sometimes we need to radiocarbon them, and then. Sometimes it's tricky when you have a, a big, <laughs> the collagen preservation is no good because then the, the radiocarbon dating is not so precise. And yeah, it's always there. It's like, mm, this is iron, this is Roman. But definitely they start uh, uh, being more frequent in the archaeological record from Roman times, yes. So the issue with burrows is that if you're trying to analyze time by stratigraphy, by basically like the layers in the dirt, if you're digging down in a hole into the layers of the dirt and you die in there, it's going to look like you were from a lot less recent than you might be because you're in like old dirt. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I also, I finally just wanted to ask, what do you hope this study of animals and their size um, and their distribution um in this kind of era from like the late bronze age to the kind of Roman empire period. Um, what do you hope this adds to our understanding of that history? Like what does it teach us? We didn't know before. Well, the first thing is that things change through time. Um, I think that um, we live in a very privileged area era in a way, but we need to be aware of the risks of being in a such interconnected economy and global system that can change for any reason, either ecological or political. And everything has pros and cons in life. Uh, Of course, when you have a very integrated economy, you can produce more. But in a way, if the system changes, um, well, your production, production, you will need to adapt your production firstly, uh, because uh, and history, uh, I think that it makes her, it makes us aware that things can change, and it provides this long-term empirical data of okay, this happened in the past. Of course, the situation now is is different, but if we had to readapt our production to a more localized or uh, relying more in the 
in the local area, which kind of strategies should we implement in order to be more resilient? And I think that history and the archaeological record can provide us hints to, to make better models for present-day work. Well, Sylvia, thank you so much for digging up other people's food garbage so we don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to learn more about Sylvia Valenzuela-Lamas and her work, we've got links to her research at scienceforthepeople.ca. And when we get back, we're going to dig back into history for the origin of another animal that looms very, very large in our modern diets. We're not talking about bacon. We're talking about chicken. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Bethany Brookshire. When something tastes like random meat, what does it taste like? Chicken. When someone is cowardly, what are they? Chicken. Too proud? Cocky. Chickens loom large in our daily lives now. The United States alone consumes 15,000 metric tons of chicken every year. It's easy to think that it must always have been this way, that chickens and their eggs must have been features of backyards for millennia. But that's not actually true. They're a lot more recent than we think, and people might not have been raising them with meat in mind. To teach us more about our favorite fowl, I'm here with Richard Thomas, an archaeologist at the University of Leicester. Richard, thank you so much for being here with me. Oh, it's a great pleasure to join you. So I wanted to start by asking what got you into studying the history of chickens? Because you are an archaeologist, you have also studied cats and cattle and sheep. Why the chicken? Oh, well, the chickens are so interesting. Um, why wouldn't you study the chicken? They, I mean, they're the most common domesticated animal on the planet. And when we think of chickens, we, we tend to disregard them. I mean, for most people, the closest encounter we get with chickens is kind of plopping this anonymous piece of meat onto a, you know, oven baking tray um, and eating it um, or going to a fast food restaurant. Um, and yet, you no, know, so we kind of, we don't really tell the story. We don't really think about the kind of origins of the chicken. So um, I, I, in the UK, there's a really active group of uh, bone archaeologists who, um, got together to develop a project to kind of actually tell that story to tell the story of this kind of really ubiquitous animal today but whose history and archaeology has not been told before i really love the phrase anonymous piece of meat because <laughs> a chicken breast really is about the most anonymous piece of meat you can possibly have yeah absolutely um so yeah so it's kind of like and so we know you know we 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 just take it for granted. It's just an, an you know, uh, and if you think of all of the cartoons that uh, uh, that chickens appear in, they're they're we mock chickens. They're, they're the butt of every joke, um, and yet they're they're the most abundant form of meat protein on the planet. And I think they deserve a bit more kind of credit, and they deserve their story to be told. Which is and I was wondering, you know, <laughs> based on kind of the ubiquity of chickens now, you would think they would be one of the earliest domesticates, right? You know, like we know that our earliest domesticate was dogs. Um, but you'd think that, oh, it must be, you know, super, super early, like sheep um, or cattle. But what do we know about where and when chickens were actually domesticated? 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. So, um, so cattle are probably domesticated uh, about ten thousand years ago, um, and for a long time, um, we thought that chickens also were domesticated in the same period. So, we're talking about the Neolithic. So, the Neolithic marks the the point in time where we transition from a hunter gatherer community into a community that's predominantly uh, uh, fed by farmed products effectively so crops and uh, livestock and so we thought for a long time that chickens were um, domesticated uh, around that time in the neolithic and that um, we the center of origin of the um, domestication of chickens was thought to be southeast asia because this is where we have the wild ancestors of the chicken the red jungle fowl are still present um, so for a long time, that that's that's uh, that's what we thought, and the archaeological evidence seemed to support the idea. But the problem we have is that the bones of chickens look a lot like the bones of other wild species. And so, uh, in the past, when, when when that research began, the identifications were based on just the kind of a. a uh, morphological assessment so looking at the bones and saying okay they look more like chickens than they do uh, these um, these wild birds these pheasants um, but what we discovered is actually that uh, new dating evidence new analysis we've got new techniques that help us identify um, these uh, birds of species um, and new dating evidence that that suggests actually that domestication of chickens was relatively recent the earliest kind of unambiguous uh, evidence for um, uh, domestic chickens that we have is from about 1650 to about 1250 years ago um, which is much more recent than we originally thought I mean there might be the thing with domestication it's a process right it's not an event so it might be that this is that there is a, a longer lead into this but this is the first absolutely confident uh evidence that we have for uh, the existence of domesticated chickens. And I did want to elaborate on that, that domestication is a process and not an event. I mean, I think when we talk about domestication, it's easy to think you're going to take this sheep and you're going to put it in a barn until <laughs> it behaves. Yeah. And that is domestication. But that's that's probably not what this looked like, right? No. So, so the, so, um, I think the best way of thinking about domestication for a lot of species, it's a kind of it. it there's a mutual self-interest in domestication. Um, so in the case of chickens, it's it, the, the timing of domestication is consistent with when we get the first dry rice agriculture. So we've got red jungle fowl who are probably attracted to the fact that we've got rice agriculture near settlements. So these red jungle fowl are coming in from their normal environments in which they inhabit. They're, they're encountering people. People are engaging with them. Uh, the relationships are building up between the people and the chickens. Um, and slowly and surely that people start changing their environments that they, uh, they're starting to bring the, the chickens into kind of, uh, uh, artificial environments and slowly but surely this kind of relationship builds um, so it's better to think of it as a sort of a mutual becoming 
rather than as some sort of process of design where you think i know what will be a great idea i'm going to go and take i don't know a flamingo and try and make it into something that's profitable and productive it doesn't not how the process works it's a very much a kind of a, a entangled relationships if you like and I also think it's interesting because a lot of people have just assumed over time that chickens were domesticated for their meat and eggs because we use them now, <laughs> yeah. right? Like I, I, I need eggs. I need them a lot. <laughs> um, so why do we make this assumption that this is why chickens ended up domesticated? I think we there's always the risk when you're writing about the past that actually what you do is you take with you your own worldviews, the way you think that you, that you know the world to operate, and you apply that to the societies that are living in the past. And I think that's what's happened really with, with chickens is the assumption that domestication was for meat or domestication was for eggs, when in fact, actually, it was probably um, the, 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 the strong suggestion uh, and the evidence we have at the moment was, in fact, the domestication may have been for their ability to fight. Uh, for for cockfighting was a really significant um, sort of um, sport cult, cross culturally, um, and the fact that the you know these these behaviours that might have been observed in the uh, in the wild chickens are then that has been harnessed by human populations, and that may have been one of the big drivers that increase the interactions between uh, chickens and these birds um, in the past. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's very easy to impose our own kind of understanding of the world. So chickens today, well, we think of them as meat and eggs, but actually when we start looking at the archaeological record, actually the relationships that they ha people had with these birds was far more complicated than the ones that we have. And I was wondering you mentioned that the evidence that we have suggests they were used for kind of, you know, cockfighting. Maybe that was for gambling purposes. Maybe it was for ceremonial purposes. Um, what kind of archaeological evidence suggests that and does not suggest that we were eating them? So the evidence for the consumption of chickens, so what we'd normally expect to find, and we do find in later periods, um, if 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 people are eating uh, animals, we will see the 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 remains of those animals, the bones of those animals that we find archaeologically will tend to be disarticulated. We don't tend to find whole skeletons. Um, we'll tend to see evidence of butchery marks on the bones. So you can see knife marks where the where the meat has been removed. Um, so there are two kind of big clues. Um, also, we can find eggshell as well. Um, so one of the cool things that uh, members of the project team were involved with was that you can actually distinguish between eggs that have hatched from eggs that have been um, eaten <laughs> um, by looking, taking a scanning a micron, micro, scanning electron microscope image of the inside of the eggshell. So if the egg has hatched, what will happen is the chick has developed. And as the chick is developed, it's drawing the calcium from the inside of the eggshell. So you get these kind of resorption, a pattern of resorption on the inside of the eggshell. Whereas if you've just taken an egg, in, an unfertilized egg, and you've opened it and you've eaten the egg, um, 
then the there is no resorption on the inside of the eggshell. So you can actually tell whether somebody whether whether people are eating eggs or not, um, which is you know I think it's not really really cool uh, technique to be able to do that. Um, uh, so when we find the chicken bones on uh, and it, and it's certainly the case when when I mean they're domesticated, you know maybe a fifteen hundred BC uh, in Southeast Asia it, they spread really really quickly through um, uh, through uh, the kind of if you like the the journey is really kind of through India and across into uh, parts of the uh, Middle East and then into the Mediterranean basin. They're sort of slowly moving along the trade routes, if you like, moving westward. But when we find chickens, you know, very often uh, in, when they're first arriving in places, they 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 you know, they appear as whole skeletons. They're they're being buried in pots and buried with people, um, and there is definitely a preference for kind of the the male birds but we see we can see we can sex um these birds um so we can we can see that preference uh being played out which is where we get this kind of assumption that the kind of cock fighting may have been a significant driver of that early relationship that people had with those birds so you see like a burial of like a dude and his prize bird yeah, Basically. yeah. I mean, I mean, it's it's it, so in when when um I mean, you know, Britain is pretty much kind of quite peripheral, <laughs> um, uh, geographically. But we 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 get the chickens arrive in Britain by the middle of the Iron Age, so about four hundred, five hundred BC, something like that. So um, so it's only taken them a thousand years or so from the center of domestication. To get all the way across, you know, moved by people, and they're not moving themselves. <laughs> they're moved by people, uh, and to come into kind of into the island of Britain and in, in, in uh, by by the middle of the Iron Age. And but when they come here, they're kind of they they appear in pots in burials. Um, they're magical beings, right? They're, they're this bird that nobody has ever seen before. They have this special status as being exotic. Um, so nobody's nobody's going to eat them. And in fact, actually, when um, uh, Julius Caesar tries to invade Britain in 54 BC, he writes in his Gallic Wars that he's really surprised that the kind of native peoples don't eat they're not they don't eat uh, fowl. He describes it as um, so they're not eating their chickens. And as a Roman, he thinks this is kind of slightly baffling. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that because you looked at the origins of the chickens, specifically in Europe and North Africa, kind of like when they arrived. Um, and they did arrive kind of um, prior to and at the beginning of the Roman period. Um, and so I was wondering how did the when and how did the use change from like primarily cockfighting, maybe some ceremonial stuff? um to like of course you're going to eat that chicken <laughs> why wouldn't you delicious um apologies for the vegetarian i don't um, know it just tastes <laughs> like chicken you know what i mean yeah. yeah um so um yeah i mean it really is the romans really it's the romans that popularized the consumption of chicken so we we can see that in a number of different ways so we see that in the uh rise in the number of chicken bones we get on archaeological sites uh, in the Roman period, um, we see a we see um, the presence of chicken bones that are disarticulated, that are butchered, they're appearing food waste. Um, so we start to see this kind of uh, 
this um, this change in attitude. Um, and we can also see that in the uh, consumption of eggs as well. We, I mean, if you look at a lot of uh, Roman uh, recipes, for example, um, we've got um, even on Hadrian's Wall, for example, which is kind of the farthest northerly outpost of the Roman Empire, we've got these 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 tablets that preserve these these um, bark tablets on which the, uh, the soldiers are writing messages uh, and. You know, so many of those are are asking for kind of sending eggs up to the up to the or they're buying eggs to be sent up to Hadrian's Wall. Um, so really, it is definitely that kind of commodification that we see in the Roman period. Um, and then that's associated. Not only do we see that the chickens are being eaten more, but they're also then uh, the Romans are also then um, starting to do more selective breeding of chickens. Um, so we start to see more diversity of different shapes and sizes of chickens appearing in the Roman period as well. I was actually wondering about um, the recipes, because, of course, modern baking in many ways without eggs, you cannot make a cake that many people would recognize. <laughs> um, and so, And I was wondering, do you see kind of the differences in recipes like do you see the origins of modern pound cake <laughs> in you know in the changing of egg use yeah i mean uh, uh i mean we know that the romans really liked their boiled eggs so they were they were served as um they served as a um snack food actually in uh, i think one of the, one of the best studies i've seen was one looking at the um the floors underneath the amphitheater at Chester, which is in, in northwest uh, England, uh, where they found lots and lots of um, egg shell fragments, and it, it, it they seem to be selling them as a kind of a, a snack food, boiled eggs as a snack food for anybody who's at um, watching the show in the amphitheater. Um, but yes, you also start to see um, uh, recipes uh, in the Roman period that kind of you know. That look like sort of sponge cake recipes, I suppose broadly. Um, so uh, yeah, I think it's that that that's the that's the time where people are starting really starting to kind of um, at least we get recorded evidence of uh, the use of eggs in in that kind of baking. And I wanted to ask about a different um, study that you worked on. Most people like to say that the sign of the Anthropocene is going to be the plastic that we leave behind. But you have published a paper that says, no, it's going to be the chicken, actually. It's, going to be, it's totally going to be the chicken. We are in the chicken age. And why do you say that? <laughs> okay, so what? why do we say? So um, uh, we, we know we're living in a world in which that the human changes to the environment are going to leave a long-lasting effect uh, on the geological record. So this is why the idea of the Anthropocene has emerged, this idea that we, we're now in a new geological age where there is irreversible change to the Earth's geological record as a result of human uh, activity. Now, the geologists have for a long time been talking about what it is, what are the markers of the Anthropocene? So we've talked about, they've talked about microplastics, they've talked about radionuclides from atomic bomb testing, lots of things that will leave this kind of permanent trace in the uh, in the future fossil record 
But I think for me, we could make the case, and we we made the case in this paper, that actually, if we think about the chickens that exist now, the chickens that we eat are the meat chickens or broiler chickens. And the broiler chickens that we consume were a product of a competition in 1940s America, the chicken of tomorrow competition, to try and create this fast-growing, high-protein-producing bird that could feed a growing population, growing post-war population, at a relatively low cost. So they had this competition to try and create new strains of, of, of chickens that could meet that brief, effectively. And that's where the broiler chicken, the meat chicken that everyone kind of consumes now uh, emerged from and since the, the 1940s and 1950s that broiler chicken has been um they've been there's been continued selective breeding to make that bird grow faster grow quicker put on more muscle mass um so that again we can feed this kind of growing population and that and that explains really the success of the chicken in the kind of latter half of the 20th century and why now chicken is the most common meat we we eat but the chickens, those chickens are, I mean, the first thing to say about chickens is how many billions of them are going into landfill every year. So um, the, you know, the, the, the number of chickens uh, alive right now is about four times greater than the uh, human population. So we're, we're dealing with about 24, 25 billion. Uh, billion chickens on the planet right now right at this minute um and if you think about the lifespan of those broiler chickens to go from hatching to what is effectively a roast dinner sized bird takes 35 days 35 days i mean it's astonishing how we've managed to you know um uh, breed those um selectively breed these birds so they can grow so fast so quickly um, so you think about how many billions of chickens and how many billions of chicken bones are entering into the uh, geological record, the future geological record. So first off, just the sheer scale of it. The second thing to know is that these birds are so different. They're so completely different from anything that we any chickens that we see in the archaeological record. So. When we start comparing the size of those bones, the broiler chickens are so much bigger, so much wider their bones are, their skeleton is, because it has to support this very fast growth and this very high body weight. Um, they are, um, so in, in, in shape and size, they're completely different from any other chicken that has ever lived. In terms of their uh, bone chemistry, they're very, very different from anything that has ever uh, any other chickens that have ever been fed before. So chickens are naturally omnivorous animals. They'll eat a range of different foods, whereas all of the broiler chickens are are fed on usually a maize-based um, uh, feed. So they all have a very, very distinctive um, bone chemistry. that you can Yeah, eat. you actually see that um, sometimes on like cartons, vegetarian fed is like a yeah. is like a selling point yeah yeah well i mean but that's a really odd thing because these chickens are naturally omnivorous they will eat insects and worms and all sorts of things you know um so their shape and shape and size is different their bone chemistry and genetically they're all identical 
Uh, and that, that's, a, that's obviously a big biosecurity risk that the, the, the boiler uh, uh, production companies are, are, are very worried about. But, the, you know, they're all genetically identical. They're all the same chicken. Um, so, again, they have because basically you're, you're locking in parts of the genome as you're selectively breeding them. Um, you're locking in parts of the genome for different attributes that you don't then undo. So uh, over time, you kind of lock in more and more of the genome of the chicken. Uh, to meet the needs of what you want, but and at some point you'll you'll reach a, a limit without introducing a new genetic material. Um, so they're becoming more and more distinctive in terms of their 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 genetics and complete they're comp genetically completely identifiable and separate from uh, the the, arc, the domestic chickens of the past uh, and certainly uh, the domestic. Uh, the, the kind of wild ancestors as well. So on the basis of the kind of large numbers of chickens that are going into the future fossil record, their distinctness in terms of their shape, size, bone chemistry, and their genetics, we think actually that that will be a horizon. That will be a marker of the late 20th century uh, and into the 21st century of our kind of impact on the environment. And I just want to say um, for you listeners who are interested in hearing more about um, the Chicken of Tomorrow program, I believe we covered that in um, back when we covered Marin McKenna's book, Big Chicken. Um, so we will include a link to that in the show notes because the Chicken of Tomorrow program was a wild time. Um, it's just crazy. <laughs> so I actually wanted to kind of go back and talk a little bit more about how we are leaving these chicken bits around for the archaeological record, because you mentioned they end up in landfills. Um, and But also in the paper about this, you mentioned, I, it feels awkward to say this, but like chicken mass graves. Uh, yeah. Can you elaborate on why we have left those around? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, uh, I think the kind of slight, the, the, domestication of the chicken and its story into its translation to be the kind of most abundant domestic animal on the planet is one of extraordinary evolutionary success for the chicken. Um, but it, where chickens are now it creates huge vulnerabilities. So these chickens are all identical in terms of their genetics. They're all fed the same. Um, they all have the same body conformation and none of them can survive beyond the 35, 40 days um, because their, their body weight can't sustain it. So if any of these birds get sick, one of these birds gets sick, they all get sick. Um, so it creates a huge vulnerability. So you can get situations where if there is a disease outbreak, think about um, avian flu, for example. Uh, if there is an avian flu outbreak in one of these big poultry production centers, they will have to be slaughtered. And so they will be incinerated or um you know, potentially they could potentially end up in, in, in the burial record as a result. So there's a there's a real risk there, a real biosecurity risk, um, given that more and more people are reliant on this. You know, it's a very cheap source of protein. It's a low carbon source of protein compared with if you're going to eat meat, it's better for the environment than eating beef or eating lamb or, you know, uh, 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 or, or pork. Um, so, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's, you know, relatively healthy as a as a kind of a high protein low fat food source and lots of people are reliant on it increasing number of people around but it's it is a risk uh the way that the kind of the, the um the nature of the way which we now 
manage an industrialized chicken production means it is a big risk and so there's a that that that's what we talked about a little bit in the paper about this potential um the potential future risk and the potential for these um very you know disease outbreaks to have a massive effect and for those horizons to be very visible in the future geological record that's such an interesting thing to think about i mean it's it's really sad. But it's also really interesting because, you know, we think about when we study, for example, the bubonic plague, um, you know, we're looking for those mass human grave sites. Um, you know, when we study ancient wars, you know, ancient or even modern genocides, <laughs> um, we find these mass grave sites of humans. And archaeologists in the future are going to find the mass grave sites of animals. And some of that is going to be from you know, diseases, uh, but some of it is also going to be from, you know, uh, McDonald's. And I was wondering, what do you think our chicken munching ways will tell the archaeologists of the future? You know, you're talking about these being preserved in the fossil record. What is this going to say to whoever, whatever finds it, you know, two or 3000 years from now? I think it's interesting and the comparison I would draw would really be about the way in which we treat certain species and the way in which and the way we treat others. So you speak look at look at uh, the production of chickens that the majority of meat eaters probably aren't aware of the kind of the uh, industrial production or, or of chickens or perhaps choose not to be aware it's a very invisible process so as i said right at the beginning we encounter these very sanitized pieces of meat uh, and that don't encourage us to think about these birds as individuals and don't encourage us to think about their mode of production uh, we're separated we're divorced from that process so i think the you know the archaeological record will show us that that, that for some species that we feel comfortable as a society or have felt comfortable as a society in treating them in this particular way and to, to chickens you might add you might add pigs uh, as, as a, a very similar example uh, and perhaps to a less extent, extent cattle and sheep so we got these species where, where, where we, you know we, we can um, produce them in an industrialized way and have a very kind of um, of divorce relationship with them if you like and then you contrast that you contrast that at that our relationship with those animals and you contrast it with the amount of money and the increasing amounts of money that we spend on companion animals and the fact that we give them names we will have dedicated cemeteries potentially for them well they'll have their own material culture uh, there's you know i mean the material culture associated with pet keeping now is just fast um and terrifying um and um we we could we could see from the way in which those animals have been treated careful that they had careful veterinary intervention they've been uh probably had a very long un long life um their burial context may show us that they were beloved animals belonging to particular households um so and you've got this really um, um kind of polarized relationship that we have that you know it's okay for some animals for us to treat them in industrialized farming production and, and kind of not really think about that and think about them as individuals when then we've got this other um, um 
this other group of animals which we do preference and, and do get special treatment. Now, what's interesting from a long-term archaeological perspective is that that phenomenon, that phenomenon of companion animal keeping and investing in certain species while at the same time exploiting uh, others is something we see quite routinely in different periods in time. So we see it with the Romans, for example. The Romans are very much about industrializing, you know, a kind of intensifying production, if you like, farming. And we see the Romans are actually, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're changing the shape and size of dogs and, and, and keeping of dogs in particular is a, is a, a really significant Roman phenomenon. Um, it's sort of dis in, where, when the Roman Empire collapses, those kind of those attitudes change again. They just sort of disappear. But then, when we get the rise of urbanism again in the medieval period, we start to see again this kind of rise in pet keeping. And and I I wonder if there's something in I'm not a psychologist, <laughs> but I just wonder if there's something there in the human psyche about actually there's a kind of a, like a a mental compensation effectively happening here that you're 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 treating one group of animals. Um, really in a really special way and another group of animals actually are okay to exploit um, and i think that that's that's what the i think the future archaeological record will tell us about us that we have you know that, that we have this kind of very polarized relationship with animals well richard thank you so much uh for coming on the show i'm so glad that you are not chicken <laughs> thank you very much it's been a pleasure <laughs> If you'd like to learn more about Richard Thomas's work, we've got links available at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. While you're there, you could subscribe to the show, leave us a review, follow us on social media. The reviews on Apple Podcasts really do help, and they are free. But if you're up for it, we also have a Patreon page where you can support our hardworking podcasting crew with a monthly or one-time donation. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 